What's up, Stitches? Welcome to episode 17 of season 2 of So What, hosted by me, Isabella Rosner. Today's episode is a very exciting interview with Naomi Clark, an avid patchwork quilter whose PhD has led her to study crafting during coronavirus. We talk about a whole slew of stuff, from historic paper piecing to COVID crafting diaries to signature quilts. Naomi has a really fascinating, comprehensive, and unique view of how the pandemic has affected crafting, as she oversaw more than 300 crafters as they completed crafting journals, which we discuss later in the episode, Don't You Worry. And she is deeply knowledgeable and passionate about patchwork quilting. It's honestly a win-win. Before I tell you about Naomi, it's time for the famous social media spiel! Images of what Naomi and I discuss on today's episode are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at So What Podcast. And there are lots of links up there too. The pod has a website, which is SoWhatPodcast.com, and there's a Patreon too, should you like to support Lil Old Me and the pod. That's at Patreon.com slash SoWhatPodcast. Yay! Okay, onwards. Naomi Clark is an all-around textiles and sewing aficionado and a PhD student at the University of Bristol with an interest in feminism, inclusion, digital communities, creativity, and craft. She is a paper-piecing scholar, practitioner, and teacher who also runs a paper-piecing sew-along via Instagram. How rad is that? Naomi's PhD at the University of Bristol explores sewing and craft. It has two strands. One is the sew-alongs she runs, which she studies to explore the narratives, motivations, and experiences of people engaged in an online sewing community. And the other is the Crafting During Coronavirus Project, which we talk about at length in the episode. You'll hear all about that in just a few minutes, so I'm not going to get into it here. Naomi talks about that project really wonderfully and thoroughly, and I'm excited for you to learn all about it. And, as a quick little note before the interview begins, Naomi mentions that one of the crafters who took part in the crafting during coronavirus project stitched Chris Witte. For those of you who do not live in the UK, you probably don't know who that guy is. He's the chief medical officer for England and the chief medical advisor to the UK government. Anyone who lives in the UK has seen him on TV a lot over the course of the pandemic but I need to explain who he is for those of you who do not live in the UK. And now that I've done that, let's get into the actual interview, shall we? Enjoy! Hello, Naomi. Thank you so much for being here today. I am hyped to learn about your research, your interest in paper piecing. I don't know anything about it really other than a few historic examples. So I'm very enthused. Thank you. I'm really buzzing to be here. Really excited. (laughs) buzzing we're buzzing oh yes okay love it so how did you come to patchwork and paper piecing in particular and can you please explain what paper piecing is for both me and other so what listeners who who are not pros in the paper piecing world and community so I'm 38 but I've been sewing since I was seven I've still got my first cross stitch which says like made by Naomi, age seven and a quarter, I think, because, you know, those, those small details matter. Um, so I think sewing and crafting and textiles generally is as much a part of my life as brushing my hair or brushing my teeth. Like, I I literally have to do it every day. And that's, I guess that's me carving out my space 
you know to take time for me and just that creative aspect um so Patrick was probably about 2014 I went to um Festival of Quilts at the NEC in Birmingham which is like a, a massive quilt show and shops and everything and it was it was incredible I'd never made a quilt before never really never really had that much interest in it until that point um and saw the most phenomenal quilts you could ever imagine there's such a huge variety of different techniques and colors and fabrics and messages and communities coming together it was just amazing and I did a workshop on something called English paper piecing which is um, so you have a paper template and it's typically you typically start off with a hexagon and you lay it onto the wrong side of the fabric so that's the back of the fabric and you fold the fabric over so you're kind of piecing it over paper so you're encasing it within it and then you stitch the shapes together and I quite like to think of it as like a fabric version of Tetris mm. that you can kind of twist the shapes and do any sort of combination of shapes to make them fit together so kind of the world is your oyster you can self-draft anything and I just I just got hooked I absolutely got hooked on doing it and I think part of it was portability that it's such a small thing that I could keep it in my bag so that if I was in lectures at university I would typically get it out and stitch because I had to keep my hands busy to keep my mind focused on the lecture I could take it if I was going round to my boyfriends. I could take it if I was going on a train back when we used to do things like that and travel. Um, and I loved it. And it just felt like there was so many different possibilities. So I went from hexagons to diamonds to half hexagons to triangles and houses, all sorts of shapes. Um, and I just haven't really put it down, <laughs> literally and metaphorically. Um, and over the past year... I really started to dig deeper into the name of it. We call it English paper piecing. And I, I presumed that was because it originated in England, hence the name. But actually, the more I read into it, and I spoke with somebody called Bridget Long, she was saying from her research that actually it isn't necessarily originated in England at all. It, you know, there are chances that it might have originated in Britain, but then to call it English paper piecing presumes it's English and that kind of disregards that it might have come from Wales or from Scotland or from Ireland and similarly she said that actually it could have come from America but there was that fascination yeah that fascination with all things you know British when all things English was very fashionable and it really didn't sit comfortable with me it it brought up all the all the you know we talk about decolonializing theory and design and language and I just thought why are we still using that as a term now then how inclusive is that in today's day and age that a it's not historically accurate there's no reliable record that it originated in England and even if it did does that mean we need to still keep using that term now because if somebody was in Hong Kong or if somebody was in France how inclusive is it to kind of go this is English paper piecing like why are we presuming that's that's the title that you know a nationality should come first so I I started calling it paper piecing um I'm not sure awesome. it's necessarily catched on but I think you know it, it caught on for me piecing over paper is another term that I've heard it called and I think originally 
a lot of the patchwork, you know, talking with Barbara Brackman, who's who's a historical quilt expert. She was saying the names are really fluid in patchwork. Um, and they change depending on the social context, the historical context, the political context, and things change over time. And I think historically, the names weren't ascribed to patchwork. Like it was just sewing and it would be a block and it would be visual. And so I think it was later on that the names came in. So I guess my interest is how can we move forwards, especially in, you know, post-coronavirus world. And Boris Johnson kept talking about building back better. And it's not necessarily about building back better, but how can we build back differently and more inclusively to make mm. patchwork more accessible to, to a wider range of people rather than the standard association that you, you kind of view with patchwork? Yes. Oh, oh, I love that. Do we know when that movement or the use of paper to help create patchwork started? Or has it always kind of been there? Or... I don't even yeah. know. What's the story? I guess it's really hard because a lot of it then comes down to, you know, were they doing it in the 12th century, but they didn't necessarily have the recording means right. that we do then. So um, St. Fagans, which is a museum in Wales, have got a piece of paper piecing, like Hexagon Patrick, um, and it's still got the papers in, which, like, to me, that's you know the unfinished projects are my favorite I think when you go to museums mm-hmm. and you see beautiful finished pieces and they're great but I love to see the unfinished or the wonky Me seams too. or the the visible stitches because I want to know I'm really nosy and also really interested I want to know why was it why wasn't it finished or what took your attention away from it or did you get bored or distracted or did you not like the style or like I want to know everything but Museums don't typically hold those lived experiences of the makers with the piece. It's St. Fagans, so it had the paper pieces in it and it was unfinished. So they said that's the earliest paper piece in their collection. And the the paper in it is like old newspapers and things dated, I think, from 1816. Um, Wow. Yeah, which is incredible. So it gives an indication of when it was from. But also they said because paper was quite an expensive commodity then, it's likely that the paper might have been several years after the event, if that mm. makes sense. People yep, wouldn't yep. have used it straight away. So it's kind of like what came first, the chicken or the egg. It's, it's really hard to, and I guess that's partly where it comes back to, is that, you know, how can we actually originate a start? You know, this is when Patchwork started, or this is when Paper Piecing started. But actually, does that tie back in with, did women record it back then? Or was it because the, the associations between sewing and the subjugation of women and it was seen as domestic and done in the mm-hmm. homes it wasn't really worthy of recording in the same way that Classic. you know men who did art and and things like that was so you know there, I don't think there is a this is our original ever I like that mystery why was paper used in this way was it like a stability thing was it easier to shape a piece of paper and then you know kind of mold the fabric around it from what I've read and I think the Ulster Museum in Northern Ireland they said that the pieces were typically kept in because they didn't have the wadding that we have now so it was like another layer of it was their wadding basically yeah for the quilt so I think that's probably you know it's a combination of the ease of you know it's a very geometric shape so to get that exact nature 
would have relied on somebody having access to things to measure angles to be mm-hmm. able to cut the pieces out. So, you know, it makes me think that it was certain, I don't know, socioeconomic status kind of divide between who did and didn't do it. But then I think keeping the papers in was then their way of adding warmth. Whereas now we would take the papers out because we've got batting and wadding that we would put Mm -hmm. before quilting it together. I'm going to shift from quilting, patchworking, paper piecing, all that good stuff to your PhD because you're doing it all. You're doing a bunch of stuff at the same time. You're a multitasking (laughs) queen. So can you tell me more about your PhD project? Because I really don't know much at all. And I would like to learn more. So my PhD, it's changed focus quite a bit, to be honest. Um, So where I'm at at the moment, when coronavirus hit and I was seeing my Instagram flooded with people doing lockdown quilts or COVID crochet along and, and all these sorts of creative experiences. And I just thought, you know, these lived experiences of makers they need to like we need to do something and it needs to be done now so previously I was looking at people's experiences of taking part in a digital sew along that I run which I'm still doing but I'm now looking at their experiences during coronavirus Hmm. and it's partly because I was reading about the women that um knitted and darned the socks during World War II so when the men had come back and as they you know slept the women from the women's voluntary service took the socks off they darned them they washed them and put them back on the feet which just yeah it just blew me away and then I thought well who are these women like how did they do that because back then there was an expectation that women had to keep home so they would Mm. have all day kept home and done what was expected of them you know those those societal views then of how women should do but then at night time they stayed awake at night to go and done such because you know this sort of do your bit for the country during the wartime but there are very very few lived experience historical records of the women themselves that really go into depth about kind of how they did that and how they navigated their identity during that time and so I really didn't want this to be another lost experience um so I put out that you know the ethics board got through really really quickly they're really supportive and I just put out an open call on social media and said are you a crafter I'd really love it if you could take part in my research which was inviting people to keep a diary um and every time they crafted it was to write down the the day the time of the day where they were crafting so it was looking at kind of where how they used their home space to craft, you know, did they have a designated crafting room or was it done in the living room or especially when, you know, you see the reports that women were responsible for majority of the, the homeschooling during this time. How did they then navigate their identity as a maker during that time? And also just how they were fe- feeling kind mm. of before they crafted, during crafted, after crafting. And it just, it took off to a level that I hadn't anticipated. So there were 317 participants wow. that responded. Yeah. So, and as a qualitative researcher, I'm used to working with like 10 people. Mm. So to have that sort of level of response from 19 different countries around the world, Slovenia, New Zealand, UK, USA, Australia, Canada, and the ages were hugely varied between 21 and 84 I think it's like 
which is a vast I think it's a testament to just how varied you know there isn't a set ideal for how a crafter is Mm. and I think especially in mainstream media they portray a crafter as a woman in her 60s who knits and crochets or the opposite is it's very craftivism and and kind of that that way and actually I think there's a whole spectrum in between Mm. and it's, it's not that clear cut and for 30 weeks people kept their diaries and it was just phenomenal I felt like custodian of their experiences during that Mm. time because they recorded what they were making how they were feeling and then emailed their diaries to me some people did stitch diaries some people did video diaries they were written diaries um one lady did watercolor over her diaries and like jelly plate printing over it it was it was just incredible it was so varied so so that's where I'm at at the moment so we finished on 31st October and so now the, I guess the analysis side of it starts. So um, Congrats. And is it is it just quilters or people doing all sorts of needle and not needle crafts? Yeah. So I, I kept it really vague. I said crafters and there, there was there was a mixed response from some people, some groups that I approached. They said we sell our work. So we're not crafters. We're mm-hmm. artists. And there was that very much art craft divide in how people responded some people said um you know I do I do a lot of baking but that's not really crafting and I said actually I think it is because Mm. I can't bake to save my life and there is a real (laughs) craft and a skill to baking you know getting the timing and the measurements and all those sort of there's a skill to doing that so I think it was that in itself really stood out to me and how people categorize what counts as crafting and what doesn't and so I I've called it crafting during coronavirus but really anything to do with making and I'm interested so somebody was doing lego with their children um then you've got the weavers the dyers the spinners knitters crochet embroidery um patchwork quilting calligraphy book making like a huge huge variety of, of makers and I think the other thing that was that really stood out to me even before kind of the data and really getting to know them is obviously when you do the ethics and you do I give like I'll anonymize participants and confidentiality and I said actually that doesn't sit comfortable with me because they've invested time in crafting something Mm. by hand then anonymize them ties back in with this invisibility and especially of women and making within the home so I said you know we need to give them the option and um, 68% of participants said they wanted to be identified as the maker by first name. And I think I think that's a really powerful testament to, you know, crafting isn't just needle and thread. You put something of yourself into everything that you make. It reflects how you feel. It might reflect where you bought the items that you're using to make something. It might reflect who you're making for. So I think, you know, I think that was a really important part of, of crafting and making that ties back in with you know especially in museum collections and they have fantastic needlework and and patchwork and textiles but I'm really interested in the lived experiences of Mm. the maker and I'm using the images of the textiles almost as like um, a visual prompt to aid discussion rather than uh, data to analyze in itself because 
you know, it's, it, I don't think it's worth me going, oh, they've used a red embroidery thread on this. So this must mean that because, you know, that's putting my own view on it. So I'd much rather use the photo and then ask the person to narrate their own lived experience of crafting during this time. I really love that. And also, what a crazy, amazing undertaking during a pandemic. I felt such a kinship with the lady who was 84 right through to the person who was 21 like because it's there's that leveler I think of of craft Mm. and that when you see somebody's image online of what they've crafted you don't immediately go well what job do they do and and what's their religion and what what kind of what's their socioeconomic status you connect through the visuals and you kind of go oh my gosh I love the texture of that quilt you've made or I love the stitch you've used or the thread you've used there and that's how you kind of it is, I think it is a leveler because you can connect on that shared interest level. Definitely. What did you find out about makers and crafters and what they were making and crafting and creating during the pandemic? Was there anything like unexpected? I don't know. What, yeah. was, what have you learned? Through reading the diaries and just talking with them, I think connecting is the key the key thing that kept coming up time and time again through people's discussions the connecting kind of varied depending on for some people it was connecting with themselves Mm. that craft enabled them to slow down and to reflect on kind of what was what was happening and and how they were feeling at that time so one lady Teresa she embroidered Chris Whitty so she embroidered Chris Vitti and she'd written, um, she did it partly to process her day-to-day experiences. She said, I, I felt I needed to use stitch to capture the small things that happened in life. When people reflect on this time, it is typically going to be a very male-dominated period. And actually for her, stitch enabled her to connect with her own experiences and to connect mm. with the smaller everyday lived experiences and that's partly why she embroidered Chris Vitti. And she also, she did this French knot for every life lost. And oh. she wrote in her diary, I think, when we got up to the 10,000 mark, she said, oh, I, you know, I, I met a couple of hundred French knots, but I've got to keep going because each of these knots represents a person, a life. And if I don't keep embroidering a French knot, you know, am I then not honouring the life lost? Mm. And so I think it's just a way of connecting with what was happening in the world and processing processing what was going on. Um, one lady used it to connect with her community. So she coordinated making scrubs. Towards the end yes. of the project that we're at now, I asked people to craft a postcard. And I said, if you could send a postcard from your current self to yourself in February or the start of March 2020, what would you say? And what craft would you use to represent that? So she used material left over from the scrubs that she'd sewn. And there was a lot of scrubs that she'd sewn. And then she'd also made tote bags at Christmas for the ladies that were part of her scrub sewing network. So I think for her, craft enabled her to connect with the community and to feel like she was giving something back. Somebody else embroidered a Bayo Tapestry style version of... um, the vaccine and so for her that was her way of connecting with current events and her own experiences and just to make sense of of what was going on so I think I think connecting was is probably the most prominent 
you know prominent response from people in that it enabled them to connect themselves with current events with their community with their crafting community and with kind of the, the future heritage and realizing kind of actually what they're doing is of value mm-hmm. that makes a lot of sense those responses are obviously range from hilarious to extremely poignant so thank you for sharing those I mean, it makes so much sense that when it all comes down to it, the largest theme is the need for connection. When we were told to distance, you know, stay home, protect lives, save the NHS. And I think people that we were told to socially distance, but that doesn't mean, I think they should have gone with physical distance Mm -hmm. rather than social distance, because actually we needed social connections then more than any other time in recent history. So, you know, people talk about social distancing it was physical distancing and actually we need to look at ways that utilize social connection during this time and you know for these 317 participants crafting was a way of connecting in a whole multitude of of ways the other quote I was going to say to you is the lady who was 84 uh let me find this quote so when the diaries came to an end and that was really hard after 30 weeks of talking with them she said I feel bereft and oddly sad that you're calling time on the diaries I enjoy being part of your group of crafting correspondence almost like a secret underground movement that creates a flavor of our disparate life experiences during this often sad and certainly unsettling time in history through our needles and other crafts perhaps as a form of escapism or a hold on to reality. And I don't think I could sum it up any better than Barbara. <laughs> like she totally. just, you know, oh. it's that connection as a community and underground crafting movement, but as a way of processing what was happening or just holding on to some sense of reality or identity during this time. Agreed. I think Barbara got it exactly right and said it beautifully and again, very poignantly. What are your favorite examples or single example of historic paper piecing if you have any favorites uh, probably the piece that i spoke about earlier the piece at saint Fagans, which is an unfinished hexagon thing and even just the way they hung it up so there were magnets at the top so you could see both the front and back oh yes and it was just phenomenal to be able to see the fabric on the front which looked beautiful but then to look at the back and see the papers and I just I wanted to read all the papers and to see kind of how they'd how they'd done that so that that's probably my favorite historic paper piece hexagon project or just any paper piece project just because it's unfinished so I want to I want to know the story of it but just to see it I was going to say in action but it's not in action but to see that it feels like it represents process totally agreed what are your favorite needleworked objects or single object that is not paper piecing yeah it's still a quilt am I allowed to still say a quilt of course yes (laughs) it's probably the Changi quilts which were made um by women um in the Changi prison during World War II and again I think that part of that comes down to it's it's the signature quilt and that's what really, really captured me is looking through it. And it, I think it's on the British Red Cross website and you can click on the squares and it'll zoom in. And one lady embroidered a thistle because she was from Scotland. And that, to me, it's like, that's so powerful. And also it, it talks about identity and community and connecting and basically everything that people now still feel and still use crafting for 
it was happening then too so I, that's probably the one you know it's it is bookmarked in my tab when I'm on my laptop because I love every time I start my computer up I see it and it just really reinvigorates me because it's just it's just so powerful and so visual and emotive great answer really powerful objects as well mm. like a billion stories in one and speaking of um signature quilts I love I love a signature quilt do you know about the Adeline Harris Sears quilt it's my favorite people have asked to talk for me to talk about it on the podcast so I am probably gonna like do a little spiel about it at the end of this episode like in the conclusion yeah yeah but it's basically it's so cool this girl 18 in the 1860s um was 17 in Rhode Island I think it's at the Met now and she sent um little diamond shaped pieces of of white silk to like the greatest celebrities of the day to I think a hundred of them or a few hundred of them and asked them to write their signature and send them back to her and she included her so her quilt is this beautiful kind of tumbling block print pattern but all of the white pieces are signed by people like freaking Abraham Lincoln. Wow. It's so cool. It's, it's so cool because it's such a really, it's such a snapshot of American life in this country. Yeah, exactly. It's so fascinating. Oh, signature quotes are so good because again, it's like you, you have the power of an object and all the things that the material and the motifs and the colors and the composition say about a person, but then you also have words, which I mean, it's a embodiment of an entire community usually. Yeah. Which probably leads me on to my other thing, which is um, the parliament coronavirus quilt. Mm. So um, Dawn Butler, who's a Labour MP, had put a tweet out and had said, are there any quilt makers out there? And Rose Sinclair, who is, is just phenomenal. Yeah. Just like angel of the world. Yes. Yeah. Um, she tagged me in it and so I replied and went me I live for quilts like I am all about the quilts and Dawn phoned me up and we just chatted through that she'd had an idea for a quilt for parliament but hasn't really done quilts before and I said well (laughs) oh I am your girl yeah and then we just spoke about it so we spoke about the Changi quilts and there's also signature quilts at the Ulster Museum Northern Ireland and I also spoke about the names quilts to remember the people during the AIDS pandemic but also there was a there's a UK version and then that Mm -hmm. also went to parliament as well and so that's part of the project that I'm involved in now so kind of building on that signature quilt and the idea that MPs are going to be crafting so we've asked MPs to craft a block to represent their experience of coronavirus and it might be a fabric that they use to make their first face mask or it might be I don't know a t-shirt a child's t-shirt because they couldn't go to school on their last day if they were in year six so some some sort of way to represent their experience during this time and then the pictures are slowly going up on the twitter page so it's at parley quilt so p-a-r-l-i quilt and you can see on there just some of the incredible blocks but again, it comes back to, you know, connecting yes. and community and identity. And it is challenging this perception of 
MPs have lived through it too and irrespective of what you may think on policies mm. or approaches they have lived through this make you know to different extents maybe yeah but these patchwork blocks are just a true testament to them and to their experiences too so that's I love that you are so cool what the heck <laughs> I was going to ask you about the role of needlework question do you I feel like this whole episode has been about the role of needlework in today's world but I will ask it if there are things you think we, if there are things you want to talk about with it that we haven't talked about. I think it is just how powerful it remains now. And I'm not saying it's more powerful now. It's probably as powerful as it was previously. Just now we have a voice and we need to make sure we use that voice to shout as loud as we possibly can about how powerful it is. You know, historically, I think sewing was was often linked with the subjugation of women and it was expected as a woman that you learn needlecraft and, and to embroider either to show that you're of a social standing that you've got access or to show that you've had an education that you can do it and that's changed now a lot of you know not everyone but for from a lot of the people in my studies sewing was a choice and yeah. that's part of their identity and part of connecting and I guess it's moving away from that it takes place within the home and so we don't really talk about it we need to shout loudly about how powerful it is and how important it is and we need to recognize that in wider society and challenge these stereotypical views of crafters or sewers or embroiderers as being old or out of touch or being craftivism that there is a huge spectrum and that everyone's voices are valid heck yeah it does just tie back in, you know, I keep, I kept looking at that Boris Johnson build back better. And I'm like, but what does better actually mean? Because I presume that means let's just build back bigger. Yeah. Like, and actually better, better should mean differently. How can we build back differently, more creatively and more inclusively so that, you know, the women that have taken part and the men and the people who identified as non-gender binary in my study mm. who said to me, I didn't think anyone would be interested in my craft. The fact that somebody's doing a PhD and is interested in my lived experiences, to me, I'm just, oh, nanny's sewing again, or nanny's knitting again, or one lady, she said, I'm just a mum. But when I craft, I'm me. I have my own interests and my own identity. And I think it's how can we build back differently where their experiences are valued in every setting. Totally. Finally, last question. How can people learn more about your work? And is there anything you would like to promote? I know you have a lot going on. So hit me with all of it. Hit you with all of it. So yes. Pali COVID quilt, the Pali quilt would be Twitter to follow. My Twitter, which is Naomi A underscore creative. But in all honesty, where I post all my creative stuff will be on my Instagram, which is Naomi Alice C. And that will be everything like fabric, threads, quilts successful and successful and probably cats as well and everything in between (laughs) goodness perfect thank you Naomi it has been an absolute treat thank you so much I've loved it I've had a really good time thank you that was a jam-packed interview and I mean that in the best way possible I loved it and I'm really happy Naomi was able to come onto the podcast because her work is so relevant to So What listeners, crafters, and non-crafters alike. 
Today's episode is basically what happens when you ask the question I always ask, the one that is, what is the role of needlework in today's world, and then make an entire episode about it. What a delight! Thank you so much to Naomi for imparting her wisdom and sharing her insights. And thank you to Naomi for letting me plug my favorite ever quilt, the Adeline Harris Sears Signature Quilt at the Met I talked about at length in the interview. I really love the theme that kept recurring in our conversation, which is the importance of seeing the process of stitching. We can see process not only through unfinished pieces like the paper-pieced quilt Naomi mentioned, but also through keeping crafting diaries. I think that unfinished needlework is just as important as finished pieces, and I think many of you will agree with me. Works in progress, whether they're from hundreds of years ago or today, give us insight into how an object was stitched, not just the what and why of the stitching. There's progress in the process. I also love how the idea of process relates to identity versus anonymity in stitching. I think that's especially clear in the craft diaries kept by the participants in Naomi's project. By keeping these diaries, researchers decades and centuries from now will have a greater understanding of the emotions, historical context, and even simply the names and places behind needlework made during the coronavirus pandemic. That sort of context is something I wish there was more of in historic examples of needlework. There are so few examples of pieces that have names or dates or places. And that's one of the reasons why I love samplers so much, because they do a really good job of relaying information about their makers. They're kind of like the craft diaries of the historical needlework world, but even then they usually don't relay the feelings behind the stitch. The importance and relevance of the intersection of text and stitch comes up a lot on this podcast, and here it is again. In the case of paper piecing, people used, and still use, text to build their quilts upon, usually in the form of cut-up newspapers or letters. And in the craft diaries, crafters use text alongside their crafting, putting the stitch and text in conversation. Thinking about the connection between words and stitch can lead us down a bunch of different rabbit holes, but for now I will say, I think that words are nothing without stitch, and stitch is nothing without words. Together, they allow us to see the individual in the needlework, the hand holding the needle. And that's all I got, and that's the end of the episode. So now I will say, thank you so much for listening. Please like, rate, review, subscribe, and whatever else if you haven't already. It would really help me and so what out. Now go out and stitch some stories, and if you wanna, keep a crafting diary so scholars and fans hundreds of years from now can know who made the needlework they love so much. Bye! Thank you.